You know, I don't think that I need to convince most of you, most of you who are Christians, that temptation is a real thing. I think most of you would agree and that you would understand that. In fact, as soon as you say the word, I'm sure there are all kinds of areas in your life that come to mind where you struggle with this thing called temptation. Here's what's fascinating. Even the world tries to give some kind of explanation to this sense of temptation that we have. In fact, uh, there are a number of psychological studies that have been done on temptation that try to answer or explain how temptation exists, not from a spiritual sort of rationale, but a psychological or a physiological rationale. In other words, they're looking to biology to explain temptation. Uh, Maybe you've seen one of these experiments. One of my favorites is where they bring a large chocolate cake and they place it right in the midst of a child or a group of children and they say okay just one rule you can't eat it yet like later you can eat it but just not now so just kind of hang out and linger around it and when we come back we'll tell you when you can start to eat and so they'll of course in the background leave some hidden cameras out just to sort of study and watch how they're going to respond to this Uh, I watched a really fun one recently uh, with a little English kid named Alfie Alfie was hanging out with his friends around this cake as they put it on a picnic table. And as soon as the guy leaves, his friends are like, okay, we're not supposed to play. I'm not supposed to eat that, so we're going to go play over here. Alfie goes straight to the cake. He looks at the cake. He's like, wow, that's a good-looking cake. Then he starts to smell it. Now, I think chocolate has a pretty sweet smell, right? And apparently this chocolate had, like, really sweet smell because he's like, mmm, that's good. That's really good. And then Alfie said, you know what, I bet it tastes good. And so he, he takes a little bit off the side that nobody's going to detect, and he eats that. He's like, mmm, that is really good. He said, you know what, I want more of that. I don't just want the crumb. So he goes in, and as he's going in, his friends say, stop, Alfie, we're not supposed to eat it yet. And he says, it's fine, nobody will know. And he licks it. <laughs> Sticks his tongue, like, right on the top. And the kids are like, what are you doing? We weren't supposed to do that. They might not let us eat the cake. And Alfie, in his little English accent, says, no, it's all right as long as we just lick it. If we touch it, they'll know. But if we lick it, nobody will know. Now, how stupid does that logic sound? But it, it completely won the other kids. And so in five seconds, you see this group of five kids gathered around this chocolate cake, simultaneously fighting for tongue space on this chocolate cake. And then the guy comes in. And he's like, did anybody eat the cake? No, sir, of course not. You might want to wipe that off, buddy. And you and you and you, because they have chocolate like all over their faces, right? It's so obvious what they've done. They completely ate the cake. They licked it. And isn't that really the way that that temptation works? You, You see something, you know that you're not supposed to have it, and yet 10 seconds later, you're diving in with your tongue, you're licking it, you're tasting it, you're saying how good, and you can't resist it, and all you want is more. Well, I would say that that was a psychological experiment, but what they didn't realize is that there was actually a spiritual reality that was going on behind that. See, our, our, our temptation and the issue that we have with temptation, it is not just something about our biology and our desires. It is actually something about our relationship with God. That's what the Bible says. And so this week and coming weeks that we have, we are entering into, we're launching this week a topical series on temptation. Uh, entitled Temptation, We Want You to Know Your Enemy and Know Your Friend. And this week we begin with temptation defined in Genesis 3. It is uh, the original place where we find temptation uh, being unfolded. Uh, We know that temptation comes uh, in many forms in the Bible. In fact, if you think about temptation, it's helpful to know about the words that are used for it. 
the words used for temptation um, actually can mean a number of different things. So the same word for temptation can mean a trial or a test, uh, which are not necessarily uh, Tests or trials are not necessarily something that is sinful in and of itself. But temptation really has this connotation of a sinful desire that is being tapped into. So these words don't typically speak of, these testing words, these temptation words, they don't typically speak of that subjective sense of being tempted, but the objective testing to show the nature of what something is. So when a test or a trial comes, it's not really meant to try to trick you into being something you're not, but to really expose you for what you are. That's why James, in James 1-2, can say that we can count it all joy when we face trials, that same word for temptation, of various kinds. Why do we count it joy when we face trials of various kinds? Well, it's because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So not only does it show the reality of our faith, it strengthens it, which matures you into becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So tests, they lead to steadfastness, which leads to becoming perfect and complete in Christ, which I believe is a future reality. But remember, James 1.13 quickly clarifies James 1.2 saying this, Let no one say when he is tempted, same word, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now you'll notice that James says temptation gives birth to sin, which matures into death. See, temptation leads to sin and leads to death if not addressed. Do you see that? That chain? So when we talk about temptation, it's a, a significant issue. It's something that we should see as profoundly important in our lives as Christians. Temptation leads to sin, leads to death, and so we need to think about what it means to deal with temptation as a believer. But remember here, here's the point to remember, James 1.13, God tempts no man. So we're not talking about God testing man to sanctify him when we talk about temptation. See, this series is focused more on those circumstances that we find ourselves in where we are excited to sin against God by Satan, by the world, by other people in the world, and even our own selves, or some kind of mixture of all of those. So in Overcoming Sin and Temptation, John Owen, in this work that he writes, Overcoming Sin and, T- Sin and Temptation, he actually defines temptation, he defines it this way. And this will be kind of our working de- uh, definition throughout the series. So here's what he says. Temptation, then, in general, is anything, state, way, or condition that upon any account whatsoever has a force or an efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and the heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires of him, into any sin, in any degree of it whatsoever. And he later writes this, It is our great duty and concern to use diligence, watchfulness, and care that we enter not into temptation. And so that's what we want to be thinking about through these next weeks. We want to consider the nation of temptation and God's provision for the fight against the innumerable varieties that wage war against us. So this morning we're going to begin by seeing that Adam enslaved us to our sin, but Christ came to set us free. Adam enslaved us to our sin, but Christ came to set us free. That's, I think, the fundamental truth that we need to know as we begin this journey. But let's start by praying and asking for God's help. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you and we praise you that you are 
the God who is sovereign over all and who is the source of every good. There is no good besides you. And so, Father, we come praying to you, our altogether good Father, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, that you would help us in our hearts and souls to long more and more for you, delight more and more in you, and not trust all of the other lies that try to draw us away from trusting that you are good and that things that you have for us are good and that you want good for us. Father, bless us in this series. Free us from sin and temptation and death. Free us to love your son all the more. And it's the great name of that son that we do pray. Amen. Now the first thing that we're going to see here is that Satan actually tempts Adam to sin and he sins. Satan tempts Adam to sin and he sins. We see this in verses 1 to 6 that we just read. Now Adam and Eve, they were living the good life. We, we know that. But we, we know this snake in the primordial garden is up to no good. You'll remember that God created Adam to subdue the whole earth, including snakes, and gave him rule over them in Genesis two sixteen to 17. Uh, that's where he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. That's the only rule. Don't touch the cake. But in Genesis 3, 1, this snake slithers in and convinces mankind to image him, not God. Listen to my voice, let my voice shape you rather than the voice of God. And he does this by calling God's word into question with the woman. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then she responds in verse 3, she says this, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Very interesting, because I don't remember the you can't touch it part. Probably a good idea, probably a good idea not to touch the tree and to smell the tree, but not really what God said in his word. I I don't know where she got that, but catch the audacity of the snake in verses four to five. He says this, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, did you catch Satan's promise at this tree? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, just wait for a minute. I seem to remember Genesis 1.26, where God has already told us something about the nature of the way that he created us. And do you remember what it says? Very profound about humanity. He says there that God made man in his image and after his likeness. Just think about that. God has already made us in his likeness. And here Satan is saying, I've got a great deal for you. You can be like God. But Satan says, you will not merely be after his likeness. You will be just like him. You can be autonomous and make all the rules. I think Greg Beale is onto something here when he looks at this tree and he says, this is a judgment tree where Adam, as a priest king, is in the garden and he should have passed judgment on anything that disobeyed God. But, but that's not what he does. That's not what Adam does. He decided to judge based on his own standards, standards other than God's standards. And God said that this fruit would kill him, but Satan said that God lied and besides the fruit looked so juicy, Right? I mean, it's not just that. It just looks good. And he promised to make them wise. So the woman ate it. And he gave it to Adam. And he ate it. 
See, Satan took the form of a serpent in this garden, and here we see why he is called the tempter in Matthew 4, 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. And why John 8, 44 calls him the father of lies. He is deceiving Adam and Eve. See, temptation isn't just a physiological phenomenon. It's not just biological. Temptation is a spiritual war that is waged from without. So Satan, the world, and other people seek to entice us to disobey God. There is an outward attack that seeks to tempt us. But take note, this is the prototypical sin. This is how sin works. Satan attacks at the level of desire. Those things that you love and that you long for, that you dream about. That is the area that Satan steps into to draw you towards himself. See, Satan attacks at this area and offers you the ability to be like God. He offers really a horrible exchange. You know, when I was younger, I, um, I collected baseball cards. And when I first started, I, I just wanted to get as many as I could. And I remember I got this um, really cool card uh, by a, of a guy, King Griffey Jr., and um, at the time, I didn't realize the worth of it. Uh, it was just a bunch of, one of a bunch of my cards, and it was a rookie, so he couldn't be that good, right, because he was a new guy. And uh, I was sort of trading with some older guys, and uh, one of the guys said, hey, I'll give you this Goose Gossage for uh, that King Griffey Jr. Um, and, I mean, how was I to pass that up? Goose Gossage had this awesome stash, right, that was like all the way down here. And I was like, that's got to be worth some money. And so I said, yeah, let's do it. And um, later found out that like King Griffey Jr.'s rookie card was worth like 100 bucks. And the Goose Gossage card, I think it was like negative 50 cents. Like you had to pay somebody to take it. <laughs> I was like, that dude completely took advantage of me. And isn't that the way that Satan always works with us? He's like, doesn't this look really good? And I think you'll like it. And you'll think that it's worth more than the thing that you're getting. And in the end, what you find out is you're left worse than when you began. Satan only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Every sin is at its heart what D.A. Carson calls the degotting of God. But sin is also the demanding of man. See, sin is usually defined as a missing the mark, like a, an archer that, that takes a, an arrow and he, he shoots it and he's off target. Sometimes it feels a, a little industrial, though, I think the way that we speak of sin. Because we, we miss the meaning of the target that we've missed. Does, does that make sense? It's like, oh, we just missed the mark. Well, what's the big deal? The big deal is what the target is. See, here's the devastating irony of the, the trade that Adam and Eve made on their desire level. They wanted to be like God. And we have missed the inestimable glory of imaging the infinitely powerful and good God to his creation. And have exchanged that, our crowns, for chains, thus shattering the image of God that he made us to, to have. See, sin always promises God-likeness before it robs you of your God-likeness. See, God's king fell on that day. Adam, with all of his children and humanity, became less human for it, broken, marred from the image that we were created to bear for God. Now, one, I believe, powerful way to protect yourself against the assaults of temptation that we're going to talk about throughout this series is knowing the word of God. We need to know who God is if we're going to be in protection against the lies of those from without. Did you take note that Satan actually used God's word? He used God's word to deceive God's people. He twisted it in such a way that it was just, it was, it was almost true and it drew them into sin. And, and Eve didn't know the word enough to be able to protect her and her husband. And her husband was not faithful enough to lead her out of it. See, we need to know God's word in context to protect us against the deceit of Satan. 
But there's a second thing that we see here in verses 7 to 13 that's this. Man hides from God and others. Man hides from God and others. Talk about the original bait and switch. Satan promises them things they have never seen. Eyes wide open. They'd be like God. But instead, did you see what happens in verse 7? The eyes of both are open and they immediately sought to hide from the God who created them in his image. In other words, they wanted to be like God because there's nothing like him. And then as soon as their eyes are opened, they are terrified of God. See, they sense shame instead of security with God. Although Genesis 2.26 ends with man and woman being naked and unashamed, notice here they're naked and trying to cover themselves. See, man looks a lot more like the snake that he listened to than the God he created uh, that created them as he slithers away from God's presence. Now just note how they hid themselves from one another with leaves and from God amongst the trees. See, sin makes us guilty and filthy before God. And Adam's guilty because he broke God's law to not eat of the fruit of this tree. And he knows justice means that the day that he eats of it, he shall surely die. He knows God is just and that God has told him that he will die. Of course, John Frame here says the Bible speaks of death in in three ways, spiritual, physical, and eternal. And here Adam and Eve experience spiritual death immediately. And then physical death comes years later. But both spiritual and physical death come because of the fall and it shows its effects on every human being with one exception, which we'll, we'll get to later. But every human being that comes after him is born into sin. See, humanity, all of humanity, also becomes corrupt to the core. Now here's where the danger is when it comes to temptation. Just think about this. We have been called to hit a mark, but we have become, after the fall, like the archer who is shooting with bad eyes and a a warped bow and a crooked arrow and a bad sight in the dark. Now I, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly the best place to go and try to pull off that shooting an apple off of someone's head, right? Because it's dangerous. It's a dangerous endeavor. But in the words... In other words, the image of God was completely shattered. You could no longer look on man and see what God was like, and his kingship turned from self-giving to self-seeking rule. In Psalm 51.5, David speaks of this way that we all, after Adam, were born into sin. He says that we were all born in iniquity, every one of us, after Adam. And then Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, speaks of the reality of every human before coming to Christ. This is what he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is a dismal reality that every human is born into and destined for apart from the help of God. In fact, if you don't think that that's your plight, Paul goes on in Romans to say that there is none that is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. No, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So if you think that's going too far, Romans 14.23 goes on to say, whatever is not done in faith is sin. And so we are all sinners because none of us would say that everything that we have ever done is done in faith. 
Now, some call spiritual death total depravity, and I believe in that as long as I can define it, but I fear that sometimes when some people think about what it means to be totally depraved, they communicate extra things that we don't mean by total depravity. It may sound like the image of God and man is so completely shattered that he no longer images God at all. And I don't believe that. I believe even the unregenerate man carries an image of God. Uh, John Calvin put it this way. He said, God's image in man was so obliterated by the fall, and the only shard left is so maimed that you might as well call it destroyed. I think this might say something more than I would. I, I, I like better what Randy Alcorn and Wayne Grudem call total inability. I think that might be more clear. It's not that we are, uh, there's no semblance of the image of God in us, but instead we are unable really to image God as we were created to. I think that's the point. Uh, Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, he speaks of this kind of thing when he says this. He says that before the fall, there were two things that were true of humanity. One was that man could choose to sin and man could choose not to sin. That was true of Adam. It was also second possible for man to die and it was possible for man to live forever that was a choice that that we believe Adam was given in the garden but after the fall the Bible stands clear no man could no longer choose not to sin and no man could no longer live forever left to himself so though man is totally depraved he has the freedom to choose what he wants here's the problem though the problem is that he will always choose to disobey God left to himself it's like, it's like a buzzer, right? If you give a buzzer a choice between a Caesar salad and a dead rabbit, he's always going to choose the dead rabbit, right? He's a meat eater. And, and there's a similar nature about us in sin. We just have an appetite for sin after the fall. Our hearts are bent towards it. That's the nature of who we are. See, some Christians have referred to this event that we just read about that has created this reality in us as original sin. Some have, have thought this, this event is original sin. It's the first sin. Most use, use that original sin term, though, to refer to the sin nature that every man and woman inherit through Adam. And so because that's confusing, I think sometimes it's more helpful just to call it inherited sin. That's what we, we struggle with, inherited sin, like Wayne Grudem says, because it speaks better to what it is. Now, a, a lot of non-Christians struggle with inherited sin because it doesn't seem fair that we'd be punished for Adam's sin. Christians and non-Christians alike, they say, why is it that I would be judged based on Adam's sin? Why would I be guilty on his account? And we live in such an individualistic society that it's hard to process paying the price of someone else's crimes. In fact, one of my best friends from high school, I used to share the gospel with him constantly when we were in school together, and this was really the issue that he struggled with It was, how could I be held guilty because of Adam? I'm kind of a good person. I'm basically a good person. Well, here's my response to my friend and to you, in short. The first is, is that God is still God and he makes the rules. We don't make the rules about what is right and wrong and what we are culpable for and what we are not. We actually have a sovereign who is over us. And so when we begin to question God's rules, we begin to question whether or not we really believe that God is sovereign. That might not sound very PC of me, but if God spoke us into being, I think we play by his rules. So if you believe that God spoke you into being out of nothing, then that should be easy for you. But second, have you ever disobeyed God? Have you ever lied or had a lustful thought? See, we're judged for those sins too. So here's the chain. Adam's first sin led to 
an inherited sin nature of all of humanity, which results in the actual sins that we commit daily. So you really are a sinner by nature and by choice. Now here's what that means for us. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. And that means that left to ourselves, sin is it's rooted so deeply in us that death is our only future. And when it comes to temptation, that means that temptation isn't just a spiritual war that is waged from without. See, temptation is also a spiritual war that is waged from within. And our desires are bent even in Christ. So our best motives are tainted by sin. Adam and Eve lost communion with God for their sin. Satan tempted them with the promise of being like God, but instead they became less like God and lost intimacy with God in the garden. Because God created man in his image and after his likeness, I don't believe that man can ever escape his identity as a worshiper and a servant king before God. I believe the Christian doctrines of an inherited sin and the image of God make the most sense of the world that we live in. Catch this, we need to understand inherited sin and the image of God to live in the world that we live in and to understand temptation. See, the doctrine of, tem- uh, of inherited sin gives us the basis for our humility amongst one another. N- none of us are totally free from the power of sin in the sense that uh, Jesus has not come back and fully made us perfect as we shall be perfect. None of us are better than anyone else. We need to be aware that we are not in danger We are not only in danger of being deceived without by Satan and others, we are also in danger of being deceived from within, being self-deceived. See, our own hearts can lie about God, about ourselves, about others, and tempt us to abandon God. This should humble us. We should be humble knowing that even our own hearts can lie to us about who God is and who others are. That's inherited sin. And because of inherited sin, we Christians are always worse than our right beliefs and because of the image of God people who are wrong about Jesus are not as bad as they could be in other words hope is not lost on those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ people right about Jesus are not as good as we could be or will be but we are utterly dependent on Jesus every step of the way when it comes to temptation Uh, there's a, a third thing that we see here notice what sin does Once temptation gives birth to sin, it breaks upward and outward relationships in verses 14 to 24. In verses 14 to 24, it breaks relationships. Now, you'll remember that God created us for relationship with himself and with others and the earth. Uh, We see that in Genesis 1. But notice that man's sin leads to hostility and brokenness in all of those relationships. Uh, Notice that God curses for sin. These curses for sin are are laced also with this cure of grace. So the, the, the relationships are broken, but God's grace is also clear throughout verses 14 to 24. I, I love what G.K. Chesterton famously said here. Uh, he, he said, certain new theologies dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. And I think we see that throughout as we look at these different consequences of sin. You see these on display in your everyday life. First, Notice the sun is going to fight with the serpent in verses 14 to 25. The sun will fight with the serpent. You'll notice that God curses the serpent. He casts him down to the bottom of the food chain where he'll eat the dust every day, reminding him of man who will now return to the dust. But catch what Christians have long called the first good news of grace in verse 15. As soon as the curse comes, here comes the promise of grace. He says in verse 15, important verse in all of the Bible, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Just think about this. The fall is happening. We're in the very middle of him beginning to talk about the curses. And even before he gets to the end of the list of the curses, he begins to discuss and describe the beauty of the grace that is yet to come through the son that will come from a woman. He is already getting them ready for hope that he is going to restore them in Genesis 3.15. The serpent will no longer freely deceive the woman. There's coming a day. There will be enemies generation after generation, but a day is coming when that will be no more. And she'll have a son, a son who the serpent will bite the heel of, but that son who is coming will ultimately crush the serpent's head. There's hope coming, there's help coming. Of course, if you're wondering why this snake talks or why we call him Satan, it's because the rest of the Bible goes on to show us that Jesus is the victorious son and Satan is the dead snake in Romans 16.20 where it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. The grace of the Lord of our Jesus Christ be with you. He is coming to crush, right, ultimately and finally, that great serpent. Now think about this. The first Adam led us into sin, into a judgment tree in Genesis 3, and made us susceptible to temptation. But that last Adam, Jesus, went to another judgment tree, the cross, to free us from sin and its effects, including sinful desires and temptation that works from within. Now Paul speaks of the power of what happened at that tree, the cross, in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. This is a beautiful display of the power of the cross and what it does. And here's what he says. Listen to this. Paul says this. And you, speaking to Christians, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, being Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by counseling that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, Jesus is that son that is promised in in Genesis 3.15. He is the one who disarmed Satan, triumphed over him at the cross. That judgment tree, that tree where mercy was born. Of course, our problem with the serpent isn't just our heels, though, is it? It's our hearts. It's our hearts. Notice that not only are we promised grace that is coming in Christ, that we have received in Christ, notice that he also says that Eve is going to fight with Adam. Eve will fight with Adam. Uh, Notice in verse 16, there we see that childbearing will will hurt, but it will happen. Uh, Some of you uh, husbands have probably experienced this. Uh, Your wives have said mean and nasty things to you as they were giving birth. And you were like, it's okay. And she was like, I don't want the epidural. I wanted this naturally. And you're like, well, then can I have the epidural? Because you're scaring me, right? Childbearing is painful. But, but it's also going to happen. And this too is grace. That It's not that every baby after this is stillborn, but that God allows us to continue to have babies after the sin, after the promise of death. God is still meeting us in his kindness. 
You know, Trinity Bible Church, as we think about relationships between men and women, uh, I don't have long to linger here, but uh, we are complementarian in our beliefs. You can find this in our statement of faith. Uh, we believe that God created man and woman in his image, equal in dignity and worth and value and intelligence, uh, sometimes uh, greater in intelligence, but with diverse roles in the home and the church. And just note that God first addressed Adam after the fall, not Eve, even though she sinned first. It's declaring that, that man has a kind of leadership that he is called to exercise sacrificially for the good of his people. Adam was the head of his family. In fact, Genesis 2 that precedes Genesis 3 and before the fall gives us all kinds of heads up about the way that men should exercise godly leadership and they were created to lead before the fall. You'll notice that God created Adam first. He created Eve from Adam. Eve was a, made a helper for Adam. God presented Eve to Adam, and Adam named her woman. And all of these point to the reality that Adam was the head of Eve, his wife, who was called to submit to him in the same way that wives are called to submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5. And the church is called to submit to Christ. See, this is why male elders are called to exercise leadership through teaching in the local church. Why we need men like Jim Hughes to come and to serve us in this way. See, this is a family where the New creation is breaking out and being restored. We're finding restored relationships on display in the local church where we're showing what good godly male leadership should look like, not like the world. So catch this. This text highlights the diverse struggles that women and men face with one another. Temptation, temptation to fight and push against God will happen and it will happen uh, significantly in relationships between men and women, between husbands and wives, in those most intimate of relationships. So ladies, notice that it says that your desire will be for your husband. I've had people tell me before that they thought a woman's desire for hus- her husband was the curse. Maybe it felt that way. I hope that the husbands in this congregation don't make their wives feel that way. I hope it's actually quite the opposite. I hope that wives in this congregation more and more feel that their husbands are a blessing in their life, that they are life-giving. But catch this, Genesis 4 helps us understand what this word for desire actually means. Genesis 4 uses the same word, and you'll remember that there Cain is jealous of and angry at his brother Abel because God showed greater favor to Abel's sacrifice. There's a brother fight already breaking out in Genesis 4. And there the Lord says to Cain in his jealousy and anger, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? In verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Now you'll notice here that, that sin is really pictured as like a monster that is crouching and just ready to pounce on Cain in his anger. He is open and exposed to sin and this temptation. And here God is saying, be careful. He is looking to pounce on you like a a monster to consume you. And this is the context of his jealousy and anger, his funky heart. And Eve's desire is not a good desire in Genesis. In Genesis 3, her desire is the desire uh, as Adam's helper to rule over him, to control him. See, her desire or temptation here will be to usurp the authority and leadership that God calls him to exercise, and she wants to lead him. 
if you're a single woman in the congregation, we don't have time to linger here, but let me just encourage you, look for men who are seeking to submit themselves to Christ. Men who are looking to submit to the rule of Jesus Christ. And not just in normal daily affairs, but even when it's hard. And married sisters, let me just encourage you, show your husbands more grace than they deserve. Encourage them that when they lead well so they know what it looks like. I don't know if you've noticed this, but men can sometimes be kind of numb. It's actually just a true life confession. And it's helpful if you will just encourage them when they do well, so they know what well looks like. You might have husbands who you're just taking for granted that they're serving you well, and they didn't know that the the thing that they were doing was actually helpful to your heart. So just help them see it'll be life-giving. Let them know where they're serving you in ways that actually are beneficial to you spiritually. Say, this was helpful, this was good. And maybe every once in a while, this wasn't as helpful. And men, our struggle is here to use our God-given authority to exploit women or to rule over them. Uh, men will use physical strength to put women in their place. You know, it's, it's kind of that women get my, woman get my chips attitude. Like, you need to do what I say because, you know, look, the Bible says to submit. Uh, brothers, uh, that verse about wives submitting to you, it is not meant to be a bat to beat them with. And that is for them in their heart and the Lord. That is not for you to use to spiritually abuse or hurt them or harm them. See, they will use power, men will, to exploit women. And this isn't of God. Husbands, love your wives. Love them. Love them as Christ who gave himself up for the church. Uh, Notice the grace that Adam shows Eve. It's super convicting. He starts off by blaming her for sin up top. Any guy felt like that? Like, yeah, I kind of didn't do so well here. But notice how he rebounds towards the end. Did you notice that he has the opportunity to name her? And what is it that he names her at the bottom? He names her, in particular, Eve. Why? Because she is the mother of all life. Didn't she just lead them into death? See, he could have called her death in the midst of this horrific experience. But instead, he calls her a fountain of life. See, those who know grace show grace. He he sensed the grace of God. He, He showed the grace of God. Brothers, let me just encourage you, study your wives. Wives are different. Not all wives are the same. Study your wife, the wife that God has given you. And scheme up ways to drive them towards joy in Jesus and joy in Jesus. That's what we should be doing as husbands. We should wake up in the morning thinking, how can I drive my wife towards joy in Jesus and joy in Jesus? If you're doing those things, I think you're winning at husbandry. Third, man will fight the garden. Did you see that? A lot of fights going on. Man will fight the garden, verses 17 to 19. Just like male headship isn't evil, neither is work. Work describes man's relationship to the earth. God created man to work and keep the garden. Same words that are used for the way that priests were created to work and keep the temple and the worship of God. So this first priest king, Adam, was a gardener. And the curse comes in verse uh, 17 where it says, In pain you shall eat from it all the days of your life. See, now, God made us to work, and work is good. Work was before the fall, but we will be tempted, we will be tempted to treat work with idleness or idolatry in a way that God didn't create it to be treated. So either we resist work or we deify work in both our sins, but catch God's grace. He will still eat outside of Eden, and his work will still be fruitful. 
even despite the sin. I mean, here again, God meeting him with grace. Work is good, but it will be hard. Work images the God who works. In fact, Ephesians 6, 7, Paul says this. He says, work with a good will as to the Lord, not man. But fourth, we see here that God cast out man in 20 to 24. So there's a, a kind of fight between God and man. You'll notice in these verses that God both casts man away from his presence and at the same time covers his sin with animal skin. Do you see that? There's, there's judgment and grace met out there again. He is cast out and covered. You'll notice he closed them when he drives them out of the garden, placing cherubim with flaming swords outside of the garden of Eden where they walked with God. And they could eat of the tree of eternal life. They're, they're cast out of that presence. And even in the garden, they depended on God's grace for life. How much more, just think about this, if they depended every day on the grace of God in the Garden of Eden, how much more should we be dependent on the grace of God daily as we live outside of the garden? How much more so should Adam and Eve have understood their desperate need for grace outside of Eden? But here you see the progression, though. Temptation led to sin, which led to separation from communion with God. I don't know about you, but I, I want communion with God, and I don't want to compromise that. So what do we do? What is our hope in all of this? Only God's grace can restore the relationships that we have broken. Now, why is that? Because we are sinners by nature and by choice to the very core of who we are. We are destined for death, physically, spiritually, and eternally left to ourselves. We inherit this sin nature, this guilt of Adam, as evidenced by our actual sins, but even more so by our heart's loves. Our hearts don't love what they ought to. See, my, my greatest problem is not just what I do, but it's what I love. I don't want what I want to want as, what, as much as what I ought to want to want it. Does that make sense? Let me give you the short version. My wants are broken. Like even my desires are broken. I can't even trust my desires, the things I love. I even need those things to be educated by the word of God and empowered by his spirit so that they are new and alive and lead to eternal life, not death. See, I think you'd agree that you're an actual sinner and that God clearly judges actual sin. But hear me, if you don't believe in inherited sin and you can't believe in inherited righteousness, if you don't believe in inherited sin, you can't believe in inherited righteousness. Inherited sins and sin is of grace too. Here's what I mean. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, this is what is said in, in the chapter that is about the power of the resurrection. It says this, For as in Adam all die, speaking of our inherited sin and death that comes with Adam, so also in Christ, those who put their faith in Christ, shall be made alive. See, Jesus is the last Adam. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, if, if you want real life and victory over your temptations, it means that we are utterly dependent on Jesus for what only Jesus can give through the power of his spirit. It is not something psychologically or biologically that is in us. It is something spiritually that is to be found in God and God alone. Now, there's, there are, few quick things I want to just remind us of as we close. Important thoughts on temptation. First, remi reminded of this. God never tempts us. 
God is never looking for a way to trick his children into walking away from him. He is not trying to make you into something that you are not. He sends tests to help you in his grace show you who you are. He tests us to show us where we are so that we can draw near to him as an invitation to draw into further communion with him. Second, Satan, the world, and the other people can seek to tempt us to walk away from communion with God and unity with God's people. Satan, the world, and other people, they're, they're external agents that are used by Satan. And Satan himself can seek to draw us away from God. Now we'll talk about this throughout, but Augustine says that evil and sin are, are simply the privation or perversion of good. In other words, God created every good. And I believe temptation comes at the level of promising you some good that is apart from God, that is either from another source than God or that is better than what you think God can give. There is some sense in which there is a good that you long for in your temptation that you are trusting it for more than you are trusting the voice of God. See, either evil is a lack of good that ought to be or a distorting of some created good. Evil is not some created other thing that is in competition with good. It is a an actual deforming of good or a lack of good. And that means that we need to become firmly acquainted with the goodness of God. So important if you want to fight temptation. I think that some people think the best way to fight temptation is simply to like just say, I'm going to stop doing bad stuff. And that's true. Like go and break your computer and, you know, get rid of your smartphone if that's like struggling you with temptation. But that's not the end of the game. Like the most important thing in all of this is that we see the vastness of the goodness of God. In Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks writes this. He says, listen, this is so good. The main reason why men dote upon the world and damn their souls to get the world is because they are not acquainted with a greater glory. They're not acquainted with a greater glory. Men ate acorns till they were acquainted with the use of wheat. Ah, that men were more acquainted with what union and communion with God means. A new name and a new stone. That they did but taste more of heaven and live more in heaven and had more of the glorious hopes of going to heaven. Ah, how easily would they have the moon under their feet. Brothers and sisters, we we need a big view of the goodness of God if we are going to fight temptation in our lives. Stephen Charnock's masterful section on the attributes of the goodness of God would be a great thing to read. Stephen Charnock, the goodness of God, look it up. It's awesome. Third, even in Christ, our own hearts are bent towards sin. We need to remember that. Never think that your heart is not susceptible to a temptation. Never think that, that in Christ, that you are so in Christ that you no longer need to worry about being tempted. I think that's a lie of Satan as he draws us in. He says that you've got strength and victory over this. You don't need to be careful or safe or wise. You don't need to fight this. And yet, what we find is, the reality is, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's my heart. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our inclination. And we need to be aware of that. We need to keep watch on our own souls and pray. Fourth, Jesus conquered temptation so that we can too. There's hope. There's hope in fighting temptation. We want to see this throughout. We're going to look at this throughout. Jesus' victory disarms spiritual enemies that tempt us, but we must 
be ever united with Christ to have that victory. And if we are united with Christ, there is always hope that we can have victory over any temptation that attacks us. We must pursue Christ through his word, through prayer, through his people, trusting that God wants to give us victory and will give us victory in these things. And fifth, you need to ask yourself if you have taken sin's side against God or God's side against sin. Have you taken sin's side against God or God's side against sin? That's the question. If you're not in Christ, you're in Adam. Sin is the monster that has swallowed you. And only Jesus can rescue you if you not put your faith in Christ and are in Christ. So what if you were doing what you want right now and you don't feel bad about it? You're not a believer. Maybe, maybe you think that means you're okay. But what if your wants are broken? Have you ever considered that? What if you don't want what you should want? Or what if you, your wants are misordered? You know you want to lose weight, but you also want a donut. You know your, your wants are broken. You know you don't want to get drunk, but you keep drinking. Wants are disordered. You don't want to lose your job, but you don't want to show up on time. You see, our wants, they, they can be broken. And could it be that your great problem is that your desire is actually not just your desire, but your, your desire itself, your, your wants are actually your greatest problem, and you need God to meet you in the longings of your heart and transform even those? See, don't leave this morning without repenting and believing the gospel of the Savior who came to give us new hearts with new desires that have a new end for you, an eternity with communion with God. See, Adam enslaved us to sin, but Christ came to free us. And only in Christ can we find the freedom that every human heart longs for. Let's pray.